and welcome to the Power of Sports podcast. In this episode, we speak to Coach Ron Adams, who is an award-winning assistant coach with the Golden State Warriors of the National Basketball Association. Coach Adams is now in his 54th season of coaching and has been with the Warriors since 2014, when he joined the staff of head coach Steve Kerr and together have built one of the NBA's most remarkable dynasties, making the playoffs in six of eight seasons and winning four championships. Basketball has taken Coach Adams all around the world, to Asia and Europe and all over the United States, but now he coaches not too far from his boyhood home of the Central Valley of California. Coach Adams has also left a considerable imprint on basketball, having not only made a name for himself as a stellar defensive strategist, but also because he embraces his role as a seed-planting senior statesman of the game. For these accomplishments and for the assistance and advice he's given to many younger coaches and players, Coach Adams has been widely lauded as one of the NBA's best coaches. Indeed, in 2022, Adams received the Tex Winter Assistant Coach Lifetime Impact Award presented by the National Basketball Coaches Association. Rick Carlisle, Pacers coach and president of the NBCA, said at the time of the award, quote, Ron Adams embodies everything that makes a great coach. He is passionate about teaching, has a great basketball IQ, a tireless work ethic, fierce loyalty, and a deep love of the game, close quote. Warriors head coach Steve Kerr agrees and credits Adams for much of the success the team has enjoyed throughout the 2010s and into the 2020s. Quote, he has been amazing from helping shape our defensive identity to giving me head coaching advice. Most of all, he's a wonderful human being who I love seeing and talking with every day. Close quote. So please join me as I ask Coach Adams about his life in basketball, his approach to coaching, and what the power of sports means to him today. Coach Adams. Good day. How are you today? Can't complain. I would love to ask you about your wonderful holiday season, but I imagine since it's smack dab in the middle of the basketball season, it might be a little bit different from ours. Are you able to celebrate the holidays? Yeah, it's a little more truncated, but it's always enjoyable. At least we were home for Christmas, so. That's wonderful. That's really nice to hear. Thank you so much for taking time for the show. I really, really appreciate it. Ever since our paths crossed a few years ago, when I was asked to help coordinate some meetings with yourself and Coach Osamu Kuraishi of Japan, I've been really looking forward to getting to know you and learning a little bit from you about your experiences in basketball. I'm a basketball junkie. I've been playing since I was six. A huge Warrior fan. Grew up right here in the Bay Area. And I know you've coached elsewhere, but I hope we can talk a little bit about the Warriors at some point here in the show. But before we do that, I always start these shows by just trying to go back and learn about the childhood of people that I'm interviewing, you know, what it was like playing sports growing up. I know you were a college basketball player, but earlier on, what were the sports that interested you most when you were a child? Basketball, number one, but I played baseball, did track and field in high school, ran cross country one year at the request of my basketball coach, who also was a track and field coach, Bob Fraley. Bob's a wonderful, wonderful man. And uh, he went on to become a world-class track and field coach specializing in the pole vault. But I grew up in the country, went to a smaller high school. And so sports were really big for me. And basketball was something I could do on my own Mm -hmm. every night. Not a lot of kids in the neighborhood, but it was something that I could do. And I still do that same thing in tennis. I like going out and hitting against the board. And I like the idea of myself 
a racket and a ball or a basketball in the old days and just kind of thinking about the game and working on skills. So I think sport was really big for me. I was a country kid raised on a ranch mm -hmm. and you're trying to establish your identity as a person, kind of understand who you are, build some self-confidence. And I think at a really early time period in my life playing elementary school sports, I think that's what sport and basketball in particular did for me. Mm -hmm. How fascinating. But I'm curious, you know, when you were growing up in this small town, I think it's called Layton. Is that right? Do I, am I pronouncing it right? Layton. Yeah. Layton. Mm -hmm. And, you know, did you have sporting heroes? Were there people, I know you mentioned basketball was an early love. Were there particular players you would watch on television or you know, read about the well, newspapers? The, the NBA, yeah, the NBA was on TV at that time. And as soon as I was able, I watched NBA games and there were very mm -hmm. few teams, but there were very compelling stars. And my hero was always Bill Russell, you know, top of the list, largely because he was a great shot blocker. Of course. And as a player, I, even as a guard, enjoyed trying to do that and challenging shots and that sort of thing. But the Celtics, many of them were people I followed in particular. And I followed college basketball also, but it was harder to find. <laughs> sure, sure, of course. And I think maybe I was a junior in high school or a sophomore. And I remember Loyola University from Chicago won the NCAA championship. The game in California came on at, I think, 11 o'clock in the evening, and it was tape delayed. That's how important the NCAA was to television at that time. So you had snippets of collegiate basketball, but not a steady diet of it. So it was kind of hard to, unless you read about someone, it was kind of hard to to have a, a collegiate hero. Of course. And did you learn about Russell when he was with the Celtics or did you know about him when he was in college? I think it was USF, right? That he was. No, I think it's all, it was the Celtics first and then looking back mm -hmm. in time, all of the things that he did where he grew up and his story. But, and again, Russell was not so much when I was younger because I didn't understand things like I do now, but Russell was an iconic figure in how he lived his life. His unabashed defense of, of minorities everywhere, but his sense of racial justice. Absolutely. <clears throat> his willingness to speak out on it. All of these kinds of things were really important. And as a younger adult, I understood that. I wouldn't say as a a 16 or 17 year old at that time period, I did. Do you recall a particular moment when you started to become a little bit more aware of those kinds of issues? Certainly in college. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And what were your experiences as a, as a high school athlete? I know you played in college, but before you got to Fresno Pacific and played basketball there, I imagine in a small town, you must have been a star. I was a good player in high school, you know quote unquote, mm -hmm. for our league and our section and so on. But yeah, I have wonderful memories of that. In my first varsity game, I was a sophomore mm -hmm. and my assignment was guarding Tommy Smith. We were playing Lamore High School. Uh-huh. The famous track athlete, Olympian yes. and Black Power Salute. So wow. Tommy went to San Jose State on a basketball scholarship, not a track and field scholarship. So I remember that game distinctly more than others because I opened a game with a three-point play I hit a perimeter shot and was fouled. We had no three-point line. So I said, this is going to be easy. <laughs> I maybe scored one more basket in the game. Really? Tommy had 36. So, was he uh, defending you? Yes. Because uh -huh. I was the tallest guy on our team at that point. Maybe second tallest. 
Okay. But it was interesting. Tommy and his wife came in, oh, maybe, oh, we were in Oracle, so maybe four years ago it was, to speak to the team. And he was marvelous. And he held the attention of our, our players like a few speakers I've heard. Mm-hmm. And the thing about Tommy and John Carlos and the Australian who was also on the stand, who sympathized with what yes. they were doing. Peter, Peter, his last name is, is escaping me. I know it was Peter. I'm um, going to rely on your young mind. <laughs> it will come to me once you continue with your story. But these guys played, paid a terrific price. Yes, they did. They were bas- basically ostracized. It was hard for them to get work on and on. In contrast to a guy like Kaepernick, who made a stand which was fantastic, but also had ample resources to carry on in his life. And these guys were just left out there yes. you know, flying in the wind. And that was one of the things they were protesting as well, was the, the racial-based right. poverty that existed in the United States at the time. Mm-hmm. So anyway, we, he came to speak. And afterwards, we had talked beforehand. And afterwards, I said, Tommy, you kicked my ass back in 1962 <laughs> or whatever it was. We're going to go one-on-one. We're going to go one-on-one. <laughs> So we played a little bit, and he was he was broken down, and I'm broken down. So we had a little fun together, but it was a great, a, a great. Oh, I'm so glad you shared that story. By the way, I looked it up. Peter Norman. I, I had forgotten his last name, but yeah, Peter Norman was the Australian who was in solidarity with Tommy Smith and John Carlos in the 1968 Olympic Games and the Black Power Salute. So I know that you played at Fresno Pacific, and that you were a standout there as well. I think you had a a record for most. Points scored in a game. I read at forty-three points in a game. Is this, does that ring a bell? At I did. But that was that was on our uh, freshman team at that time. We played local community colleges and so on. When I played with the varsity, I scored a lot in high school too. But what I did more when I played with the the older guys was I distributed the ball, played defense, scored. I had some scoring games, but I changed the nature of what I did on the court because uh, I've always been. I've always tried to be the kind of the cement and the cracks, mm-hmm. out what needs to be done and then trying to do it. So the consummate team player. I love that. And right after you finished playing at Fresno Pacific, you become an assistant coach there. And as I understand it, it was just a few years as an assistant coach there that then they promoted you to, to head coach and you really were instrumental in turning that program around into a winner as a coach. So I'm curious, you know, what interested you in coaching in the first place? You talk about being a team player, but was there a particular coach that you had at Fresno Pacific or somewhere else that, that really influenced you as a mentor? I think it started in high school. I, I always was interested in more than just the playing part of a team. And I had a wonderful man who shaped my life, Bob Fraley, a very giving person, really a really good model as a human being, but also a really good model as a coach. But I always had a bit of an interest in it. I was raised in a pretty conservative home. We had mindset of service and education was one of the well thought of occupations at that point in which Mm -hmm. you taught, you served others, you facilitated growth, that sort of thing. So I think I trended towards education, teaching, teaching, and basically arrived at that point. Interestingly enough, I had wonderful parents, but not professional parents in the sense of telling me I should do this or that. I was pretty impressionable. I'm sure I would have gone a direction if it would have been presented in a, you know, a regular sort of way, a message that I heard a lot. And the illustration I was going to give is I grew up in a farm. I loved 
the farm work. I learned how to work hard. My dad was a a really good taskmaster. I love livestock, the connection of animals and humans and plants. I mean, if you're on a farm, you see this relationship that many people never get to experience in their life. So that was really important to me. But of course, I look back and I didn't have any interest in staying on the farm and ranching after that. My brother did and still does. But no one said to me, hey, this farming area could be really something special with the service, quote unquote, mentality attached to this. You could help others throughout the world grow food, learn how to irrigate, you know, blah, blah, blah. Fantastic field now, perhaps not as much at that point. But again, that would have been something right up my alley, but I never had a thought. I see. I never see. There was there was never a seed planted. You know, it was too that that occupation at that point was too localized. I see. So uh, you know, I always encourage. You know, I worked with young people now for fifty four years, and I always try to help people see the possibilities that they have, not only as an athlete but in general. And I think that's one of our that's really should be one of our goals, especially as we age and we are able to talk to a variety of people and just try to plant seeds. But I always kind of am amused by my mentality then, my mentality now, as, as, as is normal as you age. But Sure, sure. You know, it occurs to me that you have been planting those seeds uh, metaphorically, and it, and it is a good metaphor to talk about raising crops and raising cattle. But, you know, you've, you've had this really historic career as a coach. And just last summer, you were awarded the highest honor an NBA assistant coach can receive as the Tex Winter Award, which is an award given by your peers. And I heard that in your acceptance speech, you called Coach Winter a, quote, brilliant fundamentalist and said that we all have a little bit of Tex in us. And so I was curious to, you know, if you could reflect on that a little bit, because I understand Coach Winter was an instrumental figure in many coaches' upbringings, as you you say. But what did he mean to you? Well, Tex was a very special guy, but he was one of a number of people that I would say fall into that category. And these were people who were great fundamentalists. They really learned how to teach the game. And I was of that era, Tex was older than me, but I was of that era in which we really learned how to teach the game fundamentally. It was important. The fundamentals were critical, footwork, stances, the synchronization of teaching, whether it be offense or defense. And I was around so many good people like that. And one of them was Bob Kloppenberg, who longtime college coach, coached in the pros some. And Bob was a meticulous teacher. In fact, he and Tex used to do a, a kind of a joint clinic. And Bob would do defense and Tex would talk about his triangle offense and, and more offensive. Of, of course. So you had many coaches like that. And the advantage for us is we really learned how to teach. And I think in, in your work, whether you're an academic like you, a business person, whatever, this, this mastering of the fundamentals, being able to execute them, if you're teaching then obviously being able to teach them, is the critical base for everything. And... At that time, we taught with passion. (laughs) It was important. We were going to get it done one way or the other, you know. And so that's what text meant to so many people. 
And then people like Tex, Bob Kloppenberg, I could go down a long list of people were all of this mindset. Now I contrast it to like the modern NBA. We have young people coming into our league. They work in the video department. They work on the floor. Uh, They began rebounding and so on. They become player developmental coaches and so on. Hardly any of them have ever coached. So a prerequisite for getting into the league years ago, into the NBA, was that you coached. You know, you had to have coached. And it's interesting, and I'm not being critical one way or the other. I'm just giving an illustration Mm -hmm. of how it's like an NBA team now is like a company. Mm -hmm. So you come in and you learn the business. And if you have a good head coach, if you're working in basketball ops, he has a system of offense or defense and whatever, practice regimen. And you you kind of learn that from the ground up. And then that kind of becomes, for many of the younger players or younger workers, their way of doing things. Mm-hmm. So it's a very different concept in terms of how we grew up as coaches and now how in the NBA, I'm not, I can't speak to college on this, but how the coaches in the NBA now go through a completely different process. Oh, that's fascinating. Thank you for sharing that. And and of course, you know, the process that you went through was rather peripatetic, right? You've been all around the country, indeed all around the world coaching. And, you know, you began at Fresno Pacific, as I mentioned, but you've also coached at UC Santa Barbara, in, in Belgium, in Japan, at Fresno State, UNLV, Drake, and of course, with the NBA, with several teams, the Spurs, 76ers, Blazers, Bucks, Bulls, Thunder, Celtics, and of course now the Warriors. And so I have to start by asking about the Running Rebels because when I was a small boy growing up here in the the East Bay, part of the Bay Area, my friend and I would go to many of the UOP games, University of Pacific, with his father, who's a UOP graduate. And on one occasion, my friend, I wasn't there at the time, but my friend was able to get on the bus with the Running Rebels team. And to this day, he remembers seeing you with the team there and he's like my, like me, a big Warriors fan. Although, interestingly, he splits his allegiance with the Celtics. He's a Celtics fan and a Warriors fan. And so, but he says that, you know, that experience for him was legendary. That team was legendary in his eyes. And so looking back on, on that particular experience working with the Running Rebels, you know, what did you make of, of that team with, coaching with, with Tark the Shark? Mm-hmm. It's quite an experience. I bet. I bet it was. I'd love to. I'd love um, to hear the whole story. I don't know if we have time for the whole story, but give me what you want to give me. Well, it was quite a contrast in going from Fresno State to UNLV. You know, he was a, a rival. And Tark was really something. Jerry was a guy who always was very good to me as a coach. He respected me. And when he was not in our league, he'd come over to our Fresno State practices and I coached our defense at Fresno State for Boyd Grant. Um, he would sit in the stands and watch what we were doing. And he was always a, a big fan of mine, which was really kind of him. And the UNLV program was unlike any in the country. There was tremendous talent on the team. And what I did, I went over and helped them after I was fired at Fresno State. Okay. <laughs> Jerry invited me over to be with the team for about, oh, I don't know, the time period from the beginning of the NC2As to the end, and I helped them with some defensive stuff, in particular matchup, my matchup defense that we ran had run at Fresno State. They won the national championship that year, and then I went back the following year. The talent was tremendous at UNLV. The atmosphere was very much like the Showtime Lakers. 
Mm-hmm. And as far as the interest in the team, the fanfare, the people coming to games, mm-hmm. it was incredible. I mean, every game at the end of the game, we had all the top boxers were in the locker room, comedians, actors. I mean, I go on down the list, many of them working in Vegas at that point, the Vegas program at that point, and a lot of good players. We had Larry Johnson, I think. Of course. Larry was fantastic. And unfortunately, he was back in the league, in the NBA, and then was still a good player, but he was a fantastic player. And Stacy Ogman and Anderson Hunt and all these great Greg players. Anthony, right? Greg Anthony, of course. Greg Jackals. I mean, one of the top teams ever, I would say, right? Those, those run Rebel teams. I, I think if that team would have, if we would have won back-to-back, which was a possibility, I think it would have gone down as one of the, that team would have gone down as one of the greatest of all college teams. Yeah. Well, you know, the, that was, for me, that was the, right about the time where basketball was becoming really important in my life. I started playing when I was six, but I was about 10, 11 years old when those teams were winning it all. And, and like I said, my friend and I were just big basketball junkies. Used to play basketball in his front yard. They had lights on the driveway. Used to play until three in the morning. So those, those teams were legendary, no matter how many titles they won. But, you know, I'm curious, you, you know, that you then later break into the NBA as a coach. And you mentioned the similarity between Showtime Lakers and UNLV, but what were some other similarities and differences that you noticed when you got to the NBA between the college and the pro game? Well, the pro game was is just completely different. Yes, it's still basketball, but, you know, different rules. At that point, when I came into the league, a different way of officiating. The players, everyone who steps on the floor is a talented player. Everyone has a skill set. It's a knowledge league. You have to learn the 400 or so players in the league when you play against them. The whole relationship aspect of coach to player is radically different. In college for many, many years, I still think it's true in some programs, but you have the coach up here and then you have the players down here and there's kind of a communication direction that is a little bit superior, the superior, you know, authoritarian speaking to younger people. I think that's changed in college too. Mm -hmm. But in the pros, you're dealing with older, although young men with a wealth of of experience. If I'm coaching a veteran who's played 10 years, his knowledge of playing that game, playing against a given player is vast. And so you utilize the knowledge of the of your players uh, on a team, but a very different way of doing a lot of games, fewer practices, training camps are important. Any practice you have in which you have a little bit of time is important. So yeah, just a a lot of differences, but it's still basketball. Did you find it difficult to make that transition from being a college coach to being a pro coach? I'll put it like this. I think if tomorrow I were, I would coach a high school team, I would have a lot to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so going to that level, you had a lot to learn. I likened it when I went to Europe to coach pro ball, and that was a huge learning experience. A different game, having to understand the mindset of players from different countries, and then weaving that together was fantastic. It was really a great experience. But I had to do a lot of learning, so I think it's just going to a different level of play, and it, it doesn't mean that the that level is higher than... Sure. Lower than what you coached, it's learning. 
Right. There's just a learning curve no matter what the, the transition is. The, the, the game, how it's played, the officiating in high school, all of the noise around you from parents and, you know, whomever else. A lot of pressure in high school sports right now. That's right. Coaches. So. And what about the players in, in your, your many years of working with young players coming into the NBA? What have you observed in terms of their learning process, right? They have a steep learning curve as well coming in from either college or the high school ranks to the pros. I imagine you've had some experience, you know, coaching them both on and off the court. What have you observed in that regard? Well, the young players are always really fun to coach, especially when they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and mm-hmm. you know, willing to learn and <clears throat> so on. But there's a huge difference of someone playing three years of college basketball and playing one year of college basketball. Sure. When I first went into the NBA years back, most people stayed in college for a while. So you were getting a player who thought the game differently, who was more mature, who had generally been coached by a really good college coach who did a lot of, you know, tough love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, many of these guys were coached pretty rigorously by the college coaches. And these guys fit in seamlessly for the most part. The guys coming out after one year, it's 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 different. But the nature of how they're prepared is different. And mm-hmm. so they've all played AAU basketball. And the advantage that guys had years ago in the summer, they were coached by their high school coaches. So you had a balance of playing games, some of the games, and practicing for the most part. And there was a different sense of discipline when your high school coach is coaching you in the summer rather than an AAU coach. Of course. So in AAU, it's good. The guys get to play a lot, but they just play so many games, so many games, so many games. And so now you see young people coming to the league who are actually broken down a bit as young players uh-huh. because of all the play. Mm-hmm. So that's one aspect. The other is the mental, you know, just the, the tremendous change from one year of college. In some cases, no college. You know, you have guys, there are other avenues you can take now and to play somewhere and then come into the pros after one year. And so not only the basketball and learning basketball becomes critical, but just the the whole life of the NBA as contrasted to what they knew, how, in, how to adjust to it, you know, how to grow yourself and settle yourself mentally. Mm-hmm. And for a lot of the young players, it's extra tough now because of social media. And of course. In the old days, we didn't have social media. And social media is not generally helpful if you're reading about yourself as you're trolled by a lot of people who you don't even know. Sure. But many people subject themselves to that. And it, it, it's, it's a tough route at times for a lot of the athletes. And is this this uh, mentoring of the mental side of the game, is this something that you take an active role with these new players to the league, the young players, and, and helping them to work through? We do, but at our level, there, is, there are so many support people now. Of course. We have several people who basically, their job is to help our younger players grow, facilitate their needs. I mean, there's so many people involved, which is good but as you increase voices around an athlete, it also can become tricky. You know, in the old days, I was just having this conversation recently with some coaches, but if you had a player and basically the coaching staff was the person shaping this player. Right. 
and basically the voices that the player was hearing, other than at the pro level, his the voices of his agent and his, you know, the the group around any athlete, you mm-hmm. know, friends, whomever it might be. That's always been there in the pros. But I think you were able to control the narrative better in assisting someone to grow. Mm-hmm. I think the support staffs are good, but just the number of voices, you know, that people are hearing, it's can be a little bit much. Mm-hmm. But that's that's the new NBA. And Does it have a, a bearing on creating team chemistry or helping to shape that team culture when you have a lack of control of that narrative? Well, you're banking on the fact that the people doing these jobs are building that. You know, they're part of the culture and they're working towards that. So I think that's important. And so that goes back to who you hire to be around players and so on. But it's it's just, you know, it's just a, a sea change in, in terms of what it used to be. Mm-hmm. Now, the league has always, for quite a while anyway, provided services for young athletes and programs. And the, athlete, the NBA players have meetings every month and so on, discussing a lot of different things. So that particular help has been there, provided mm-hmm. by the league, and they do a good job of it. But now the teams are kind of extensions of the league with a lot of people involved. So the whole enterprise has really expanded, hasn't it? And you've seen it firsthand being a part of the league for many years now. So I want to talk about one of the teams that you worked for. You were instrumental, I know, in rebuilding the Oklahoma City Thunder in the 2000s when the team had the superstar trio of Kevin Durant, Russell Westbrook, and James Harden. And I'm curious what it was like to coach a team like that. I know you've become known as a defensive specialist and a really a brilliant mind on the defensive side of the game. But of course, those players are not necessarily known for the defensive side of the ball. And with so many players on a team like that who know they can score almost at will, you know, how do you get anybody to play defense? Well, the Oklahoma City experience was really a good one. Most of those guys were 19, 20, maybe 21, but they were young. Mm-hmm. And yes, all offensive-oriented players that you mentioned, all the guys, but they also had really good defensive components. And so actually selling defense there was not difficult. The first year I, I was there, I went in, I was hired after 20-some games. I think the team had won one or two games. Mm-hmm. And th- this was pre-Harden, but we had Kevin and Russell. And then I was there with Scott Brooks, who's another Valley guy, mm-hmm. was the head coach. And, you know, we started getting some things done. The second half of the season was quite good with a lot of growth, kind of established a defensive format, added to it the next year, brought in a fellow Swissman, Tavo Cephalosha. He's full Swiss, I'm half Swiss. He was a really pivotal player for us, a six, seven-ish defender at the point. And so the second year, we had a really interesting defensive team with great length, great athletic ability, and a lot of activity. So uh, that was probably the greatest growth I've seen in a team between, you know, if you're looking at a two-season growth. From one year to the next, yeah. Yeah, the second year, we had a really fine team. But everyone bought in pretty well. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you mentioned Scott Brooks and you've worked with some really fantastic head coaches. And of course, you've been a head coach yourself as well, but it just occurs to me now, what is some advice that you would give to an assistant coach in terms of working with a head coach? What what makes a great assistant coach for that head coach so that you can work as a team and as a staff? 
Well, I think to be a really good assistant coach, you've got to be totally committed to your program day in, day out. Now that sounds rather trite, but all of your energies have to go into it. Your mindset, you can't be, you can do a little planning in the future, but it's the now, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got to, you have to have that mindset. I think the second thing is you usually have a role on the staff and you want to do your job, whatever it might be. Having said that, you also, as I said earlier, you want to be the, the glue in the cracks. There are mm-hmm. many things that come up that need addressing that the head coach never has to know about, quite frankly, mm-hmm. that your job and your job is to take care of those, those kinds of things, whether it's counseling, whether it's getting a player back on track who the head coach has, in the player's estimation anyway, rubbed the wrong way. There's just mm-hmm. so many things that come up. And then there's the teaching aspect of it. I think one of the important things that we do in this league, we've become really the key developmental league. That's been true for many years, but it's profoundly true now. Mm. And so this mentorship of a coach working with one or two players, which was usually the standard, is important because you're not only shaping a game fundamentally, but you're shaping a person mentally. And it's a critical part of the game. It's a critical part of the NBA. And I'll leave it at that because, again, I think I got off track. It's not a problem at all. I appreciate you exploring your thoughts on these issues. You know, I gather, Coach Adams, that you're a humble man, which I admire. But it is a fact that you are known as a great defensive mind by your peers and and a great assistant coach. And, in fact, you were named the league's best assistant coach in the annual survey of NBA general managers for five consecutive seasons. And I read recently that you once said, quote, even as green behind the ears as I was when I started coaching, I held as a premise that you had to play substantially good to great defense to win anything, close quote. So I'm curious, you know, when did the importance of defense first crystallize in your mind? I can't give you a set. I mean, I can't give you a specific date when I had an epiphany. I think I just always felt that. I think your models tell you that too, Mm -hmm. who you admired. Like I've shrunk a little, but at my tallest, I was 6'1". I always wanted to be like 6'10 or 6'11". And I think I never became that height because God said, if you would ever get that big, you'd probably be a bully. So I'm not (laughs) going to make you that big. But I'd always loved the big guys in our league. You know, Nate Thurman, who was just a fantastic man. I was so sad when he passed away because he was such a great person to visit with whenever I saw him. But you had all of these huge guys, Chamberlain and so on. They were just hard to, they made the game difficult for the other team just through their defensive abilities. Yes. And at that time period, the big guys really anchored the defense. You had other defensive players in the perimeter, but the, and so those are the guys that I really liked Mm -hmm. and I watched. And so I think through osmosis, you developed this kind of like defensive mentality, but that's, that's a guess. I can't give you specific. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. It evolved that way, but. I mean, you you had mentioned Bill Russell earlier. He, he might be the greatest defensive player in the history of the NBA, right? I mean, so many, and, and the proof is in the pudding, all the championships that he led the Celtics to. That's so fascinating. You know, I know that the defense has been instrumental in all the success that the Warriors have had over the last, you know, what is it, eight years now? And I also know that the team under Coach Mark Jackson was improving its defensive abilities before Coach Kerr took over. And of course, Coach Kerr brought you in as well. But, you know, I'm not a basketball technician, so please correct me if I'm wrong here. But 
do you feel that the physical defensive mentality that Coach Jackson installed either, you know, allowed you and Coach Kerr to accelerate the development of the team when you took it over, or perhaps was it more difficult to install the new defensive scheme, which I gather is predicated on switching after Jackson had developed, you know, the young players to have more of a physical on-ball style? You know, what was your experience in, in, in meeting the team for the first, the Warriors team for the first time and, and getting them to kind of buy into your system? Well, I had friends on the staff, so I knew a bit about the team going into it. I knew it was a good locker room. Guys got along pretty well. But I thought Mark and his staff did a good job. They put a lot of time in on defense. They had Bogut as a good defensive center sure, to center them. Steph was not the defensive player then that he is now. But they had some, they had two-way players that were really helpful. And so I would say it, say it this way. I've been on teams in which we've really prepared the team well and we've made great progress. Players have developed and then you're out in the street. Right, right. So there's a progression to this. You take what was done mm-hmm. in the past, you survey what you have on your squad and you carry on. My biggest fear coming here is that we're going to play a very open offensive game. I know that. So in our first year here, we played free and loose and shot early. And we had a really fine squad, started winning and just kept winning. And so my fear or my challenge, as well as a bit of a fear, mm-hmm. is trying to develop a defense, you know, that could be compatible with this high octane offense that we were going to play. Of course. And Quite a challenge. It's much different if you're playing pretty conservative offense and then putting a lot of your eggs in the defensive basket. That's a different equation. Our equation wasn't going to be that. Mm-hmm. And so we arrived at a good, you know, a good fit. We played great offense. We played great defense. Our, our defense was able to cover for a lot of long shots and in some cases, deep rebounds on transition. We had a very long team. I've always been a, a big exponent of switching intelligent switching, aggressive switching. And uh, lastly, we had good two-way players, people who could play offense and defense. And so it evolved. And I think in sport, there's so much pressure to win, and we won early. Right so away. Right away. Win early, <laughs> yeah. everything falls into place. Your rotations sure. are good. People aren't whining about not playing. Right. They see what's ahead of them. And then Steve brought in a really fun culture that people bought into. Mm-hmm. And I think that was kind of the evolution of it. And then we built on it from there. And we took advantage of the people we had and it worked out. It sure did. Four titles in eight years, six playoff appearances. I think working out is an understatement. But I'm curious to probe a little bit more about that culture issue because, you know, I'm a, an anthropologist by training and this is something that Sports culture on a national level is very interesting to me as well as a global level. But I am very interested in this team culture, right? Like, how do you build that? And of course, as you said, the locker room was a good locker room when you joined the Warriors. But what were some of the things that you think were instrumental in shaping the Warriors culture in a way that, you know, helps to sustain success over time? Because that's really, really challenging to do in professional sports, as I understand it. You know, I've read about Bill Walsh talking about sustaining success with the 49ers, it's a real challenge 
once you're at the top of the mountaintop, everybody's coming for you, right? So what do you think has been the, some of the keys to success for you guys in terms of that culture? Well, Steve was influenced by Pete Carroll with the Seahawks, who has very similar philosophy of, or I should say they have similar philosophies, but Pete had been doing it for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole aspect of joy in doing something, having joy in doing something and having fun. So all of us got into sport because of what, you know, what was, what was the reason that we got into sport? It was, it was fun. fun to do. Yeah, absolutely. And you had competition and you could feel good about yourself and you learned all of these lessons, right? You know, when you got your tail kicked, you had to pick mm-hmm. yourself up. And the whole mediation that comes in playing, pickup and so on, you know, because arguments arise, but people figure it out. You have a little scuffle. Usually the two guys who scuffle become better friends after that. Just all of these (laughs) these things that happen when you're playing sport, right? But I think Steve settled on this one thing that the game is fun and we're going to make it fun. And that's what happened. And so this joy, the mindfulness, mm-hmm. you know, all the other, the other tenets of his uh, philosophy came into play. But there is a caveat to it. Mm-hmm. And the caveat is called winning. Mm-hmm. And when you win, things seem to fall in place. Mm-hmm. And when you don't, and you're new, and you're trying to build something, it becomes much more challenging. Not that you can't succeed at it. And so... I'm pretty realistic in that regard. I I look back on those years, fantastic years. We had a fantastic year last year again. But I look back on those years and you have to have good luck. Sure. Have good players. I mean, yeah. I don't care how good you are as a coach or how good you think you are, you've got to have good players. Well, and and I as you mentioned before, you know, sometimes good players become great players, right? Sometimes there's a player who, you know, is a great offensive player, but maybe not the greatest defensive player, but then works into it and and is developed and and develops themselves. And so I'm curious, you know, I've been studying coaching for many years and it's occurred to me that one of the things that must be very challenging for coaches is the lack of a long-term commitment to a contract that, you know, I know there are some, you know, exceptions to this rule, but Coaches are often changing jobs. And I know you've worked in a number of different places all around the country and the world. So what, what do you think is a, a reasonable runway for a coach to be given when they are first starting out as the head of a program? Well, I can't probably attach a year figure to it, but someone has to be given an ample opportunity. Let's put it that way. Unfortunately, patience is not a virtue in sports and patience isn't always exhibited on the part of ownership or management. And so the programs that have excelled recognize the person that they have as a coach. And, you know, it takes some vision, takes some courage if things aren't going well. Sure. Now, now you're going to be criticized. And the question is, as a owner, as a manager, general manager, whatever, can you take the criticism? And do you have the belief to allow someone to do what they can do? I was Think back on Dean Smith, who I think was my favorite college coach Mm -hmm. from afar as a younger coach. And again, largely for what he stood for as a human being, Mm -hmm. tried to do through sports as far as social justice goes and so on. 
but I think he was hanged in effigy on the North Carolina campus when he was starting off, but someone had the insight to stay with him mm-hmm. and it worked out pretty well. It sure did. It sure did. <laughs> so pro sports aren't quite like that, but it is interesting now. Coaching is, in, I say this all the time, but coaching is under assault. Yes. Um, more so than ever, not only in the pros, but certainly in, I think, in college and, and high school also. It seems like every year that goes by, we have more people coaching from auxiliary positions within any organization. Everyone's a coach now. We have general managers mm-hmm. in our league who basically are telling coaches what to do. You have general managers talk about hiring a coaching partner, not all teams, but some. In baseball, you know, the higher-ups are basically instructing managers as to who to play, how long someone can pitch, the whole thing, based on AI, I guess. But it's very different. You know, sports writers used to write about games, and now you have sports writers inserting video and coaching the game in their their columns. That's right. You have social media, and you have – it's like – in our league, it's just it's just unbelievable. Now you have you have people rating the officials who are calling a game. Like this crew <laughs> ended up by this person. They their emphasis is calling walking. This crew of three people. <laughs> this is their emphasis. This official's record when calling, you know, a Detroit Pistons game is such. And it occurs to me, Coach, it could go either way. This could be increasing the joy that Coach Kerr preaches, or it could be decreasing the joy. What what say you? I mean, it's certainly a laughable matter. I think it's a, the joy is always there, but the complexity of of working to it, you know, of having it encompass your, your group becomes a bit more challenging, let's put it that way. Sure. And I would be amiss if I would not say this, I'm just going to skip back a question to a question you asked, but a big part of our culture and the growth of our culture had to do with Steph, Steph Curry. And early on, not so much because Steph was, when we came here, was still evolving as a player. He was, he was good, but he wasn't the Steph we learned to know. That's right. The global icon that he is today. But all of the aspects that in a culture that Steve prized are embodied in in this guy. It's really so true, isn't it? You know, not only the humility of it all, but the joy of it all, the all-encompassing nature of his personality, the giving nature of his personality. Now, when he gets to the court, he's a different, you know, he's a different cat, expresses himself in a different way, but totally about the team, you know, for a superstar, totally about the team. That's what you have to have to win big. Yes. You have to have star players who are totally about the team and the team's well-being. And so you had this person, you know, on this roster when we came in that embodied all those things. And is it, you know, being a fan watching from my couch, it, you know, my opinion matters very little, but it's always a, a, occurred to me that his is sort of an inclusive form of leadership, Steph, that is. And You know, of course, you've seen other ways of successful team sport individual athletes leading a team, right? With very fiery personalities that push others 
to maybe out of fear succeed. But that's you know kind of brand of, if you will call it, inclusive leadership seems to be part of that. Would you would you comment on that? Is that how how would you define his his style of you know he's obviously not the coach, but you know he's I couldn't I couldn't say it any better than you said. But he's an inclusive person. Mm-hmm. He cares about others. And I'm not talking just from the standpoint of guys on the team. He has a mission in life and a ministry that is unbelievable. I can't tell you how many times he's spoken before or after a, a game to a young person, you know, young kid, many with terminal mm-hmm. illnesses, you know, with the family there. Mm. It's just incredible his empathy for people this understanding and the way it works itself out vis-a-vis other people. You know, it's just, he just, he's a gifted person, but gifted is the wrong word. He's just mm-hmm. a, a, a wonderful human being with a big heart and sees the pictures of life quite clearly. Mm. Pretty remarkable. And I mean, he has, of course, been in the NBA for many years now, but he's still a relatively young man. So to have that vision is pretty remarkable. And, you know, I know that you've coached many teams over the years, and these Warrior teams are obviously very special to me personally. But, you know, I wonder if you could reflect on some of the different teams that you've coached. You know, we talked about the Running Rebels a little bit, the Oklahoma City Thunder a little bit, and of course, going all the way back to your Fresno Pacific days. Is it more difficult to get certain teams to buy into the philosophy of basketball that you have? And, you know, if so, why? How do you reflect on different teams that you've coached over the years? Well, every team is different. I look back on the Fresno State teams. We had tremendous teams with a tremendous leader in Boyd Grant, just a wonderful, wonderful man, outstanding coach, a wonderful friend. I miss him. But our teams were machines. They were precise. They were aggressive. They encompassed this work ethic, you know, this whole idea of the magic is in the work. And they were delightful to coach just a delightful group of guys over the course of seven years or so when we worked together. That will always be a highlight of my career because we took a state university that, you know, both in basketball and football at that time, and that it grew into something significant. But every team is is different. You know, San Antonio was great starting off there. We had a really good team. David Robinson, a fantastic guy, and we had Rodman and I just had a whole team of great guys. We were very good there. And then I go from there, but not because I wanted to, but because my head coach wanted to move. Didn't have to leave San Antonio. We had a good playoff team there. We go to Philadelphia, which was the worst team in the league. And uh, because John Lucas was the head coach and John was offered the general manager's job as well as the head coaching job. But the point of this story is we go to Philadelphia. Terrible team, not managed well, just on, I could go down the list. But the two years there were quite delightful because we set a league record, I think. We ran through, I should say, 83 different players came through our program in two years. Wow. Many of them (laughs) veteran players, great guys who I got to know. Many of them became great friends after that experience. So when all is said and done, those two wretched years from a standpoint of <laughs> of wins and losses and losing were two delightful years. And I think what it illustrates to me is like, I don't care what team you've been with. It's just all about the people you meet. It's all about the relationships. It's all about the experiences with other people 
that you remember that make it worthwhile, that motivate you and fortify you as a human being. And, and Philadelphia was a great example of that. I'm so glad you shared that. You know, it occurs to me, I mean, that that is a, you know, from the outside looking in, you know, reading the box scores, an experience that you had as a coach that, you know, on again, on paper might have been difficult, but you found some wonderful aspects to it. And so, you know, in your life in coaching, out of coaching, however you choose to answer is fine. But has there been a particular, not necessarily moment, but a particular form of adversity that you faced and overcome that continues to give you strength when you look back on it? Well, I think I've been pretty blessed in my life. I've had some adversity. If you're talking about from a work perspective, I've been fired several times, and that's not pleasant. And you question yourself, but you also do an inventory and say, well, what could I have done better? Mm -hmm. What did I not do? And of course, in most cases, it's the circumstances of your team has not done well enough as judged by the people who operate the team. But you still go through that process and it's difficult. You have two young kids, for example, you're out in the street, you start hustling again. It's kind of exhilarating. Sure. You go on to the next thing. And I look back at those things now and it doesn't, I don't have a lot of feeling one way or the other, but I can pinpoint at times how I was feeling when that happened. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've had great fortune with good health. Uh, there's so many positive things about my life that I, I think maybe some of the adversity does not stick out. Now, adversity has taught me, as it always does, it strengthens you. You can't, I don't think you can achieve greatly unless you stumble along the way several times. And I think that's true in business. It's true in a lot of other, I, I would say it's true in most everything. But, uh, you know, you pat the dust off your pants and hopefully you have a, a life vision that is not all wrapped up in this one event, but you can see clearly down the road you know, that you have belief in your own skills and you have a belief that things can work out. Absolutely. Better. Thank you very much, Coach. And I'm glad you mentioned <clears throat> your children because I have three little ones myself and our oldest is seven and he's a big basketball fan. And he likes to play. And he wanted me to ask you this as our first question, but I've saved it for last or second to last. He just wants to know that he'll be able to have a spot on the Warriors when he grows up. That you have that kind of power, don't you? <laughs> but in all seriousness, you know, what we is one dreams? We need to dream. We need to dream. Hey, he's a good little player. He's a better shooter than I ever was. I'll tell you that. I was, I'll tell you a funny <laughs> little story. I was, my daughter teaches at Piedmont High School. Mm -hmm. So she invited me to the basketball game the other night because she has a number of her students on the team. And there was a cute little guy that came up to me and he was seven-ish, maybe. He says, I'm going to play for the Warriors one day. He made that statement. He just shot off up into the stands. I never saw him again. So he wasn't even asking for, but that's, so, that's pretty funny. He was telling me. He, he was, was telling, telling me. He had already decided, so that's good. Well, I'm going to have to tell my son that there's those kids out there already <laughs> haven't made up their mind up. They're not asking for permission. Well, in all seriousness, you know, what is what is a piece of advice that you would give to a young up-and-coming basketball player? You know, maybe if you're willing to focus on defense, because I know that's what you're known for, but anything regarding basketball, what is something you would, would tell them to do? It's kind of what we talked about at the beginning of the podcast, and that is learn your trade, you know, 
learn how to be a fundamental player, learn the thinking process that comes with being a really good basketball player. How do you do that? You watch, you talk to people, other players, maybe coaches, you talk to your parents who are your best coaches and your biggest fans. A lot of things go into that and it takes a lot of work. I can't imagine anyone working any more diligently at their craft than a guy like Steph Curry. He's a two-time MVP. I would say the same against Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is a marvelous practice player. Kevin Durant, if he had his druthers, would play every day in the summer. That's kind of who he is as a basketball player. But Steph's work ethic is unbelievable. And he's at the top of the heap, right? That's right. Top drawer as as an athlete in the world, a basketball player in the world. So I think helping your kids learn how to work is important. Helping them to understand that you can dream about a goal, but the goal will not be achieved by dreaming. It's achieved by doing and working and taking care of yourself. And that's the physical component of it. And then there's the mental component of it. You know, it's hard enough in life to face all the things that come your way, trying to keep a positive attitude, not only outwardly, but inwardly of yourself, who you are. I'm okay. I'm okay. And you can't put roadblocks in front of you that inhibit you from being the best version of yourself in these two aspects. And I see a lot of young people doing that. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of good things that come through our modern tech society. It's great to use WhatsApp and talk to my friends in Europe on a better sounding line than calling you, you know, where you're living in the Bay Area. A tremendous technology. I like that. I like being able to communicate internationally, send a note to you, you know, back and forth. That's fantastic stuff. But then there's a whole bunch of stuff that is just detrimental to a young person's well-being. And it's just a cautionary note, but I think it's important. And you as a parent with younger kids, you know that. You know, I've rambled on. I haven't only given one point. But lastly, I would say in the development of anyone, especially the way young kids are developed now in AAU and so on, you need to do a few things well. You don't need to do everything. The greatest players in the history of the NBA have had pretty simple games. Steph is a little bit different, more flamboyant, does a lot of different kinds of things to be successful. Most people can't do that. You take LeBron, one of the great players of our age, not a complex game, wonderful straight line driver, great in transition, could make a jump shot, scores basically at the post, not a lot of frills. He's going to soon be the all-time leading scorer in the NBA. So the young people coming from AAU, they want to do everything. And so when they come to us, we have to get them to pare down and do a few things well. And then, as with a young tree growing, they'll sprout branches and become more sophisticated in that growth process. So that's another important thing for young people. I don't know how you get that one across, but I think it's important. Absolutely. Well, listen, Coach Adams, I really, really appreciate you taking time today for this. I've learned so much and I could not have spent a better hour than learning from you and listening to your stories. It's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. You know, I try to finish every show with the same question, which is what is the power of sports to you? 
And so I'd like to give you an opportunity to reflect on that now. Well, sports have gotten extremely powerful in our culture. I, I like history and I like political science. So sports is perhaps a sign of a vibrant culture and can be taken as the sign of a less than vibrant culture. Mm -hmm. So that's a philosophical path one can walk down. But within any given enterprise, there's so much that is good. And you mentioned the power of sport in particular. I think of the first five seasons with the Warriors. And I look at the effect of the team on the lives, so many people that I know personally, many of, many of them were older people, not particularly healthy, mm -hmm. something to look forward to, the joy that it filled their hearts with. 100%. And I saw it in the Central Valley of so many people who weren't even sports fans who start following the team, me being a small part of it. So they have, you know, some sort of valley attachment, perhaps. Sure. Of course. But I saw the power of the warriors in their own lives and what it did for them. And for many people, it was transforming. So that's the good thing about sport. That's the power of sport. I think the cautionary tale, though, is how we affix importance in our culture. A basketball player is really, really important because they're on TV and everyone knows them and so on. And they're a hero to many. And, and if you're the right kind of person, then you have the media exposure to be a hero for many, for the many. But at the same time, our real heroes are all around us and we fail to recognize them. We fail to recognize them. You know, our healthcare workers over the last three years, our teachers, where, where would we be without them? And basically, in many people's minds, they're just minimized. So when you start thinking about the heroes in your own life, yes, these, you know, our athletes have a lot of glitter, glitter and so on, but the people really making things work for us, you know. I grew up in the Central Valley. Its prosperity was based on so many people's hard work especially the Spanish speakers who came here and were vital in any crop being successful. They're heroes of their own sort. But I think, again, getting back to the power of sport versus the importance of so many people who are heroes in our culture, not always being recognized for their work is a bit disconcerting to me. And I would like to see us a little more balanced in that regard. I couldn't agree more. And I'm very, very grateful to you again. Thank you very much, Coach Adams, for taking the time. I've really learned a lot and I know my listeners will as well. But my pleasure. Thank, thank you, you so much. much. Have a wonderful happy, day. Happy nice. New Year to you. Same to you. Same to you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you all very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. It was a real pleasure to get to know Coach Ron Adams. And uh, I know I learned a lot. I hope you did as well. Hope you all have a wonderful day and happy new year.